another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Another great week, in fact. It's a week where the House of Representatives of the United States is going to be making a crucial decision whether to move forward providing emergency aid to the state of Israel, uh, further emergency aid to Ukraine for its survival, and some changes in border security. That is a demand of Republicans. We'll be speaking to one of the Democratic leaders in Congress about uh, how all of that is going to be worked out. But first, I, I want to introduce Adam Smith, who has been... Well, actually, he was. it was the last millennium that he was uh, first elected to the Congress of the United States. He uh, represents the 9th Congressional District in the state of Washington. He is the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, uh, former chairman, of course, of the Armed Services Committee. And uh, for people who don't know, we spoke about on Friday, uh, there, there was a, a vandal vandalistic attack on Adam Smith's home in Bellevue, Washington. And it was just appalling and stomach-churning to hear about. He's responded with great dignity and courage. Uh, Adam, if you can just tell us briefly, what, what happened with your home? Sure. Now, he was spray-painted in the middle of the night in red paint, or I don't know, spray-paint or actual paint. Um, saying free Gaza, calling me a baby killer, and uh, advocating for a ceasefire. Um, and look, this is kind of thing, as you know, has been going on in left-wing Seattle politics for a long time. Now, you know, extremists on the right do it in other parts of the country or have similar approaches to threatening and intimidating practices. It's just an extremist approach um, that basically tries to intimidate people instead of participating in the democratic process. And it's, you know, it's, it's a small step from this kind of thing to a more authoritarian approach. Look, I've, I've met with left-wing activists on a wide range of issues, including on Palestine. I don't have any problem hearing them out. Um, uh, but to use these types of threats and intimidations, and particularly when you go to someone's personal home, you know, they did this to Seattle city council people. They did it to share, um, the sheriff, uh, Carmen best, now, it really is an effort at intimidation that frequently crosses over into violence, um, and it's it's really problematic. And is there any chance that the police can find out who did this and uh, so they can be openly and properly prosecuted? It's highly unlikely. We we don't we don't have cameras around there. We weren't able to get any sort of video. And you know they did it in the middle of the night, sometime after midnight. Uh, I was actually in D.C. My wife was home, but uh, my children are off now. And one in college, one is an adult. Uh, but no, it seems highly unlikely we'll we'll catch them. I just it's just really important that when things like like this happen, it's happened to a lot of other people. Uh, stand up to it. And from for my part, it just makes me all the more determined to keep doing what I'm doing and doing it the way I'm doing it. Because uh, I, I don't think we can allow aspects of our democracy to be intimidated in this way. Speaking of doing what you're doing, you're one of those people who's been a strong advocate for the state of Israel and support for the state of Israel that was so brutally attacked on October 7th. You have also been a strong advocate of sustaining our support for Ukraine, which is an enormously important commitment for the United States of America. Uh, what's going to happen 
when these items come up for decisions with the House of Representatives? What should happen? What will happen? We should pass support for Ukraine and Israel. And frankly, we should have done it a while ago. Um, There is strong bipartisan and bicameral support. If you brought a bill up to provide the the supplemental funding that the the president put in his uh, proposal or, or anything close to it, frankly, um, for Ukraine and for Israel, they would both pass. They would pass together. They would pass separately. Um, there would be overwhelming support on, on both sides of the aisle and in both, on both sides of the aisle and in the Senate and the House. Um, problem is there are some Republicans, uh, Matt Gates is one of the leaders of this, determined not to fund Ukraine. So they're trying to block it in a variety of different ways. And one of the things that has been done is Ukraine aid, not Israel aid, but Ukraine aid has become linked to border policy. Now, the supplemental that the president sent over included money uh, for greater security on the border. Um, But what some are insisting on is changes to policy around the asylum laws, which, by the way, I think we we can make those changes. Problem is, I mean, we've been trying to resolve our differences on that issue for 30 years and holding Ukraine hostage to resolving that rather intractable political problem is something I don't support. Now, if the Senate can get a deal on this, if they can get a bipartisan agreement over there on changes to border policy and link it to Israel and Ukraine, I'll take it. Um, but and that's what they're trying to do this week is get that agreement. But it's a it's putting Ukraine in particular at great risk. Israel has, you know, can defend itself, at least in the short term. Um, you know, they're very soon they're going to need to replenish some of their ammunition, and certainly their air defenses. Uh, but Ukraine, Ukraine is hanging on by a very thin thread right now, and they need our help now. There's another uh, decision that the House uh, is likely to face this this week, which is, uh, and it will probably be a highly partisan vote. The, the Republicans seem determined to uh, authorize a formal impeachment investigation of President Biden. I assume that you believe that's a bad idea. I do. I mean, there's no evidence of it. They, they had a hearing, what was it, about a month ago? They, the Republican star witness, Congressman Comer, who heads up the Government Oversight Committee, um, their star witness said, at this time, there is insufficient evidence to pursue an impeachment inquiry. The witness the Republicans called. You know, I mean, look, conjecture on the Internet is not evidence for impeachment. Um, and I don't want to get into the whole Donald Trump thing, but to the extent that anyone wants to say, well, you, you impeached Donald Trump twice. Well, let me tell you what the evidence was. OK, it was pretty clear. It was on the table and it was definitely there. In the case of President Biden, it's rampant speculation that has thus far led absolutely nowhere. Uh, so it, it's a purely partisan exercise that, that I hope Speaker Johnson will, 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 will not allow the House to go forward with. Uh, and uh, what what do you think, uh, other than uh, Israel, Ukraine, uh, border security, what's the other priority for this session of Congress coming up to the 2024 election? Well, two things we need to get done. We need to get... We need to get the defense bill passed, and we're really close on that, the defense authorizing bill. Um, we've got the AUKUS agreement, um, which is a crucial, crucial agreement in strengthening our partnership with the U.K. and Australia um, that's contained in that bill. Um, Senator Wicker, who is the ranking member on the Armed Services Committee in the Senate, is holding that up. 
because he wants more money for the submarine industrial base, which is fine. I'm happy to support that, but we shouldn't be holding up the defense bill over it. So we're trying to get around that. And then the appropriations bills. Uh, Department of Defense is over 50% of the discretionary budget. If they're put on a CR for all of next year, it will be devastating to our national security. So we need to get the appropriations bills passed. They're negotiating right now to try to get top-line numbers. But So by the end of the year, we want to get that supplemental that you just described. We want to get the defense bill passed, and we want to get the appropriations bills passed, or at least by the end of January. So a full plate. Uh, Adam Smith, uh, congressman from the 9th District here in the state of Washington, appreciate everything you do to your country and, and uh, by the way, for your country. And the class and uh, dignity and courage with which you and your family responded to this, this awful thing. And the idea that people are self-righteous about imposing it, a real problem. Uh, coming up, <clears throat> Professor John Yu of University of California, uh, of the law school there, talking about the legal ramifications of the judgment that Trump is not, repeat, not immune from being sued uh, over the January 6th riot. What does that mean? We will get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is the Michael. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, the second highest court in the country, and the court that is usually held to be comparable to the Supreme Court of the United States, the uh, Washington Appellate Court, Washington, D.C. Appellate Court, has ruled that President Trump is not immune from being sued over the January 6th riot. So with that ruling, is the president likely to face a bunch of suits from various people who were implicated uh, or damaged by the January 6th riot, uh, is the former president likely to be sued by those people, and will it have an impact on his campaign? To try to put that in perspective, John Yu, professor, distinguished professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley, one of America's leading conservative legal scholars. He is the author, most recently, of The Politically Incorrect Guide, to the Supreme Court. Uh, first of all, do you suspect this ruling will stand, uh, Professor Yu? And uh, if so, is it likely that the president will face additional suits over uh, the January 6th riots? It's interesting, Michael. I think that President Trump got 50-50 out of this. And so He's certainly going to appeal to the Supreme Court, but it's not clear to me that the court is going to hear the case. It might wait to see how things go in the lower courts. And that's because of the way the court, I think, kind of struck a compromise. President Trump came in and basically said, almost anything I did, I can't be sued for because anything I did, I was the president. And there's an old case from the Nixon years which says presidents can't be sued when they're exercising the powers and duties and functions of the office. We don't want presidents to have to worry about getting sued when they make 
some of the most difficult decisions that are in the best interest of our country. But on the other hand, the court said, but it's not clear here that President Trump, when he was engaged in whatever it was he did on January 6th, was acting as president. He might have been acting as a private citizen running for president, as a candidate. And the court said, when you're running as a candidate, you're definitely not the president. When you give a, when a president gives a speech at the Republican National Convention to accept the nomination, he's not acting as the president. He's acting as a private citizen. The part where uh, I think Trump made some headway is that the D.C. Circuit said, we're not going to decide that question. We're going to send it back to the trial judge, and he's going to have a proceeding to figure out what exactly was Trump doing when he gave his speech on January 6th. What exactly was Trump doing when he was talking with Rudy Giuliani or John Eastman or Roger Stone or all or Steve Bannon, all his advisors? Was he acting as president or was he simply acting as a candidate for re-election? And then the court said, if you're acting as a candidate for re-election, then you can be sued. But if he's acting as president, he might well be immune. And... Uh... <laughs> That immunity would have to be found by the Supreme Court, right, to overrule the D.C. Circuit? Well, first, we'll have to see what kind of – well, here's here's what President Trump might do. He might appeal to the Supreme Court and say, it doesn't matter what the facts of January 6th are. Everything I do it on January 6th, I was still the president. And since I was still the president, I was giving a speech. It was about a matter uh, before the public. That's being – president and since i was president i'm immune now the supreme court would hear that i think the odds are high that he would lose there on such a broad sweeping claim of immunity you might remember uh, bill clinton when he was sued by paula jones even he didn't make this far of an argument but he made one that was pretty close uh you know paula jones was someone who had worked in arkansas and claimed sexual harassment by governor clinton which occurred before he was president President Clinton said, I can't be sued while I'm president. I'm too busy. I'm working for the country. And the court in the Jones case said, you can't have sweeping presidential immunity for everything. Uh, if you committed sexual harassment when you were not the president from before your time in office, you can be sued. And we're going to let the lawsuit go forward now while you're still president. And that was a nine to nothing decision, I believe. Yes, unanimous decision. That's right. <laughs> and so the court could... Say, look, we're going to continue with the Paula Jones case. I don't think this court's going to overturn the Paula Jones case. So they'll say there's a difference when President Trump's acting as president. He might have immunity. But when he's acting as a private citizen, he doesn't get immunity. I could see the court doing that. Okay. Uh, the kind of lawsuit would, would among the likely parties to sue be injured police officers? Would that be uh, probably a a good basis to assume there will be some suits? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the part of the, you know, one of the plaintiffs in this case itself uh, is a former Capitol Police officer. Actually, I don't know if he's a former Capitol Police officer, but Capitol Police officer who was injured during the events of January 6th. Uh, you could, yes, I think you would see perhaps more uh, officers. Uh, you could also see, also one of the plaintiffs is member of Congress, you know, because members of Congress were uh, apparently threatened and had to you know, leave the floor. 
you could. I mean, I don't think it's happened. Mike Pence could bring lawsuit under <laughs> the logic of the <laughs> right? Because I, I, President Trump inspired these people who wanted to hang him, and he had to flee, right? The Senate, uh, <laughs> he had to flee, flee the rotunda too. So, uh, yes, this is an interesting thing. Uh, you're quite right, Michael. If uh, the Supreme Court doesn't step in and say, oh, no, he's immune, Trump is immune for everything, send it back down, then you could see a lot of lawsuits from anybody who was harmed by January 6th, and they're going to claim it was all set off by President Trump's speech on the uh, ellipse on January, or that you know, might have triggered or inflamed the kind of mob violence we saw that day. Uh and meanwhile, your your colleague, Lawrence Tribe, a very distinguished and very liberal uh, professor at Harvard Law School, said that he believes that this decision uh, means that uh, uh, Trump is going to lose those big majorities that he is uh, drawing in the polling right now because – it is very likely that the cases will proceed to the point where you might actually have to be voting for a felon or not. Uh, do you agree with Professor Tribe? Look, I respect Larry Tribe's views on what the Constitution means, but I don't know where he's in the business of projecting what Republican primary voters are going to do. I don't think he has any special you know, insight. I would pay more attention to someone like Karl Rove, for example, or people who are you know, real campaign people. Uh, and, this, and the reason I say that is because every time President Trump has suffered a setback in court, his poll numbers go up. <laughs> they I do. don't know why. <laughs> right? He's, in fact, uh, you know, we talked about this before, Michael. Trump has amazingly used that fraud trial in New York City to his advantage to increase his lead in the primaries. John Yu, uh, his most recent book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Uh, and what next now for somebody who's had his own court problems? I'm talking about George Santos. That and more coming up on the Medved Show. To the little land. Do you see what I see? And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there is right now a, a great deal of uh, material that is being pumped out there. Opinion pieces, news pieces, more about what a second term for Donald Trump might look like. And uh, one of the most alarming pieces comes from Liz Cheney, who uh, supported President Trump in his uh, first campaign for president of the United States, uh, not so much the second campaign, but uh, she was the number three Republican in the House. And she's asked a, uh, a, a very direct and, and relevant question. If President Trump is elected in uh, a November, next November, uh, he will only be allowed under the Constitution to serve one term. But Liz Cheney thinks he wouldn't be bound for that and might have enough uh, support in Congress to prevent Congress from actually forcing him to follow the 22nd Amendment of the Constitution. This came up, she's promoting her new book, uh, Liz Cheney, former member of Congress from Wyoming, 
She was talking to NBC's Savannah Guthrie, and their exchange sounded like this. But do you believe if Donald Trump were elected next year that he would try to stay in office beyond a second term? That he would never leave office? There's no question. Do you think he would try to stay in power forever? Absolutely. I mean, he's already done it once. And in fact, if you look at what he did in the run-up to January 6th in terms of his pressure on the vice president not to count legitimate electoral votes, his pressure on the Department of Justice, on state officials, and then refusing to send help when the Capitol was under attack, um, he's already attempted to seize power. And he was stopped, um, thankfully, and, and for the good of the nation and the republic, uh, but but he said he will do it again. He's expressed no remorse for what he did. Well, and again, but what he would have to do would not be a repre- uh, repeat of uh, what happened on uh, 2021. It, it, it's not enough because there is this amendment to the Constitution uh, that came into force 1951 called the 22nd Amendment that says you can only serve two terms as president. You can't serve more than that. And uh, I I am not sure that uh, what Liz Cheney is saying here is truly something needs needs to be worried about. Um, Meanwhile, there is a, a big piece in the New York Times. With expulsion, Santos will not just disappear. What comes next? Prison, reality TV, or perhaps a book? Well, there's already going to be a um, made-for-TV, as they used to call it, movie. That's that's already underway. And uh, they, uh, they actually, uh, at Saturday Night Live, they did a cold open with George Santos suggesting that he doesn't even have to wait to finish the book or the movie about him or his membership, his contestantship on Dancing with the Stars. There's a song that uh, could be in his future. It sounds like this, at least according to SNL. Goodbye, Congress Queen, though they never knew me at all, because I lied about everything in my life. Then I took a tragic fall They crawled out of the woodwork They whispered, he used my donations for Botox And I said, it was filler, slut And I'm not a f***ing clock And it seems to me I lived my life like a scandal in the wind Never knowing who to cling to when the law closed in. Uh, Scandal in the wind, it has a ring to it. Uh, They report in the New York Times, uh, though Mr. Santos initially chafed at the media attention, he increasingly appeared comfortable in the limelight, regardless of the circumstances that put him there. The... um, Nasa Woomer, who is his former communications director, who uh, resigned in May, described him as someone who has more, who is more interested in being a celebrity than a lawmaker. So it was perhaps unsurprising that he told reporters uh, last week that he would not rule out a path charted by other political figures. ABC's Dancing with the Stars. 
Wouldn't that be wonderful? If I had the chutzpah to go on the television and embarrass myself with my four left feet, maybe someday, Mr. Santos said. I believe that Dancing with the Stars pays you for, if you're on for two sessions, you make more than a congressman makes in a year. Congress makes $174,000. Uh, and uh, there is a precedent for such a move. In 2009, the show cast Tom DeLay, a former House Majority Leader who stepped down in 2006 after he was indicted in a money laundering scandal. Rick Perry, former governor of Texas, known for debate gaffe strutted his way onto screens in 2016. And Sean Spicer, how could we forget, former White House press secretary for President Trump, was cast in 2019, a move that invited criticism from those who believed the show allowed him to rehabilitate his image. Uh, Fox's The Masked Singer has been similarly willing uh, to help politicians looking to move from notoriety to celebrity. Last year, Rudy Giuliani, Mr. Trump's former personal lawyer, who was integral in the effort to overturn the 2020 election, made it through seven episodes before he was cut. And Sarah Palin, the uh, former governor of Alaska, appeared on the show in 2020. She and her family... Uh, also had their own celebrity reality show. When Sarah Palin was on The Masked Singer, she was singing that song, I Like uh, Big, right? I mean, she was singing the Sir Mix-a-Lot song. Right, Jeremy? Do you, she was dressed as a bear, and so you couldn't tell who that was. Oh, and, and this concluding melody from the song on SNL, the George Santos ballad, Scandal in the Wind. Listen. And I would have liked to have known you, but I'm a different guy. My name is Carlos Duncan Hines. Don't look me up, I died. Congress stuff is tough. It's the toughest job I ever had. And I was a neurosurgeon at NYU. Plus, I have the job of dad. I'm sorry, did you just pull a fake baby out of a piano? Magic. Okay, so I lied. So I told a couple little fibs Like where I went to high school and college and all my jobs And how I'm something called Jewish What does that mean? It means Muslim And it seems to me that I live my life like an evil uh, <laughs> It seems to me that I live my life like, like a scandal in the wind uh, Look, uh, he is... Um, clearly going to have a future on uh, television. He says, I'll definitely be writing a book, uh, though it was not clear that he had a publishing contract as yet. Uh, this uh, is is all bizarre. And who will uh, be the next president, okay? Uh, will it continue to be Joe Biden? Will he be replaced by Donald Trump? A large part of all of that will be determined by the New Hampshire primary to come up. It certainly makes the best possibility of uh, one of the other candidates 
um, may be putting a little blockage in President Trump's confident progress back to the White House. We'll talk about that with the governor of New Hampshire. And whenever we welcome Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire to our show, we get a great response. And partially it's because he's been just a great governor. He set records with his percentage, most recent percentage of the vote in New Hampshire for re-election. Uh, and then he's decided this will be his last term as governor. Uh, but uh, he's also been ranked by Cato Institute as uh, America's most responsible governor fiscally in terms of spending the people's money. Uh, governor Chris Sununu, he's uh, watching uh, from the sidelines, but he is going to make an endorsement eventually uh, for a very spirited Republican primary in your state. And they're really, this is not just a coronation in New Hampshire, right? I mean, it really does appear to be up for grabs. Oh, absolutely. No, there's, I mean, it's really come down to, I think, the three governors, um, Chris, Ron, and Nikki, I think, are doing a, a great job. Their numbers are moving. They're, you know, they're really engaging with voters at a one-on-one -on -one level uh, with the town halls, meeting them in the diners, visiting them in their living rooms, you know, all that, that sort of thing. Trump doesn't really do that, right? He kind of flies in, has a rally, rambles for for a little bit. Um, uh, Trump tries to do everything he can to kind of avoid talking about, you know, almost like he didn't run for, wasn't already president, right? What, what, like he wasn't already there. He didn't have a shot to fix a lot of this stuff, which as we know, didn't get done. Um, so these candidates are, are, I think, engaging voters one-on-one -on -one and kind of building that rapport with them. And that's what matters because only now, only in these uh, kind of the next couple weeks will, will uh, citizens really start making up their minds in terms of where they want to be. You know, you and me and others, we talk about it. We kind of live and read this political stuff. Most folks are just trying to get through paying their energy bills and, and fight inflation every day. So they're not in the mix. They're kind of getting into it, and especially as the field is narrowing down. I mean, the field back in 16, the Republican field, there were like 11 candidates still in the race at this point. Now there's effectively three plus Trump. So um, the, the psychology of the choice is very different. Uh, and a lot of folks are going to engage on it without a doubt. So, no, I think it's been good, and I think numbers are going to continue to move. With the town meetings and the uh, other chances to meet people face-to-face, -face, have the turnouts been good, showing people are actually enthusiastic about this election? Uh, lately, packed rooms. Every I would, I, About a week ago, I did an event with Nick and an event with Ron and an event with Chris, all within 24 hours. Every one of those rooms was packed, and here's the most I, th I found the most interesting. They all, they'll always say something like, hey, and, and who, who here is new? Who's ever, you know, maybe not heard me speak before? In each of those rooms, virtually every hand went up. So it's a whole new crop of, of folks engaging. Um, there was a young girl, actually, that I saw at a Nikki Haley event. One day, I, and she asked Nikki a, a question, and, you know, what's the first thing you're going to do if you become president and all that? It was very cute, and she got her free hat and the whole thing. And literally 24 hours later, she, they were her, her mom, and her dad were at the DeSantis event, saying, I want to meet DeSantis, too. And she was asking a question there. So everyone has a chance to participate as much or as little as they want, and, um, and that's why the poll numbers are still moving. Nationally, you just kind of see Trump getting all this attention. But I think if someone kind of breaks through in Iowa and definitely here in New Hampshire – um, and really makes it a one-on-one -on -one race, well, now it's a real 50-50 race. And Trump, you know, he could get 50% of the vote, but that means there's 50% up for grabs for one other candidate. And, and he would have to start engaging. He'd have to start 
you know, acknowledging these other candidates and, and acknowledging a lot of things he, he maybe hadn't done and kind of take on a little bit the rest of the party that's just saying we're not just necessarily anti-Trump. We're just pro-Republican, right? We want we want someone that galvanizes the party together, galvanizes the country together. Trump has proven in both those circumstances he can't do it. He's unwilling to do it, can't do it. So I think there's just huge opportunity there that people will acknowledge as they go to the voting booth. Okay, you're a governor. You're not a member of Congress. But right now there's a huge (laughs) – well, considering (laughs) recently – there's a a huge decision facing the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, about providing aid to Israel, providing aid to Ukraine, and at the same time that they do some work to tighten border security. If uh, if you were there or you were advising uh, your state's members of Congress, uh, would uh, this appear to be a worthwhile priority to pursue, yeah, providing you, aid to you, you these got, two embattled allies? Yeah, you got to support. Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. For, there are two, two different but very intertwined issues. Number one, you support Israel unquestionably. Um, you know, it, we, it's been said, but apparently not said enough, given all the protests that are out there. Hamas is a, is a brutal terrorist organization, and, and you support your allies. And Israel is very much our allies, allies surrounded by nine of their enemies uh, on all sides uh, in the Middle East. And, um, and they're not facing a border dispute. This isn't political. This is, um, this is a nation right now, or, 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 or an organization in Hamas that wants to just wipe them off the face of the earth. So, of, of course, you've got to support your, your allies there. With Ukraine, uh, the opportunity is even, is even more incredible in that you know, without putting a single troop on the ground, and for a fraction of just one year's worth of our defense budget, um, we can put our foot on the throat of the tin can army that is Russia. That's an amazing opportunity that you don't miss out on, and all the while supporting your allies and people that are fighting for their own freedoms, which is exactly what this country was founded on. So um, for me, it's a no-brainer. You support both. There are a lot of dollars at stake, to be sure, but the benefits are absolutely huge, and you're doing it for the right reasons, right? You're doing it for the right moral reasons. And, um, look, I'm not necessarily a believer that America has to be the police officer of the world and all that sort of thing, but you support your allies when they're fighting for their freedoms and their lives. And, and that's uh, – so for me, in, in that case, it's, it's an easy one. I appreciate that, Governor. Okay, last question. We have a, a GOP debate, another one coming up. And uh, this time it's not clear uh, who exactly is going to be there. It will. Uh, it does appear that Ron De- uh, DeSantis will be there and Nikki Haley will be there and uh, Chris Christie unsure. What would be your advice to each of those candidates? What should they accomplish, each of them, in the debate coming up? Sure. So because there's less and less of them in the debates, that's an amazing opportunity to get into a little detail and, and not just make your sound bites, but you got to connect. You have to be genuine. You have to be authentic. Right? We know where a lot of your policy positions are, but you got to be able to look folks in the eye. And believe it or not, you know, you can do that. Right. You can do it, do it with your tone, with your words. You have to be genuine, not completely scripted. Oh, you asked me this question, and now I'm going to read the script that I memorized because my staff wrote it for me. We've all seen that nonsense enough. There's a huge opportunity to be a connective tissue, if you will, between you know the, the politicians and, and folks running for president, and you know the family that's just watching a debate for the first time, tuning in for the first time, and saying, "Gee, I, it's down to a real choice. What, what are these guys about?" And these candidates have to appreciate that a lot of people watching the debate will be seeing them for the first time. They've been doing it for two years, but a lot of folks are just engaging. So 
I just think you got to be genuine and you got to make kind of that heartfelt pitch. A lot of the policies will be fairly similar. They got to show consistency too, right? You, you, you had a few candidates in the past show an inconsistency with the answers, clearly trying to say what they thought they were supposed to say in the moment, and that always comes off terribly, right? But to be just genuine in yourself and say, I'm not here to tell you I'm right and you're wrong. I'm not here to tell you the answer that you want to hear. I'm here to tell you exactly what I'm grounded in, what I'm about, and why I'm so optimistic about the, the opportunity for new leadership to bring this country together. Because if the country's not together, we're just going to go through four years of the same thing. And, and if I could, Michael, leadership at the presidential level, good leadership can get stuff done no matter what hand they're dealt. I don't know if Congress is going to be run by Republican or Democrat. I want a president that's going to get it done no matter what, right? And, and anytime you, you try to say, well, someone thwarted me, someone stopped me from doing something politically. Look, if you're a president or a governor or the chief executive, you either get it done or you don't. You've got to own those wins and losses. And I think everyone's tired of politicians that make excuses. Trump does that all the time. Biden does it all the time. These guys are 80 years old. They don't want to deal with future issues. They're kicking the can down the road and they're blaming everybody else. So, like, what an awesome opportunity for Republicans to get behind a, kind of the next generation candidate and move the ball forward. If we can't show results, we're not going to win again, right? You have to show results. Biden can't show results. So he's incredibly vulnerable in terms of not winning again. We have to be able to show results, not because we're right on the policy, not because we have the best ideas, but we actually got it done, right? We said, hey, we're going to deal with inflation because it's crushing families. We're going to deal with energy prices because it's crushing families. We're going to get something done on those issues, not be distracted by, you know, Trump's legal stuff or the chaos order. No matter what, how passionate the former president is, if, for, if President Trump got into office, he'd be so distracted with all this legal stuff, he's not going to spend any time on the real <laughs> issues. He's not going to get anything and, done. It's baked in. So huge and opportunity you, you to move know, forward. And that, that's, what gives, that's what gets me excited. You know the three governors who are running, uh, uh, Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie, of course, and Nikki Haley. Were they all good governors? Phenomenal. They're all, they're all good governors that all make very good presidents. But unfortunately, we can only have one. But they would all do an incredible job. It's wonderful to hear you say that. Governor Chris Sununu, uh, outstanding governor of New Hampshire, whose political future is uh, bright, just as I hope America's future will be bright, even after this next election in this greatest nation on God's green earth.